This morning's text is Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. It's a passage about Jesus sending out his 12 apostles to do ministry in the region of Galilee. And it's a, it's a text that's all about ministry. And I'll confess that I never wanted to be a pastor growing up that wasn't in my life plan growing up. I know some some people who are pastors or missionaries, they just they know from the very moment they are uh, become a Christian that this is what they want to do with their life. I uh, before Crystal and I were married and I was in seminary, I lived with a guy um, who, who that was that was his uh, feeling. He he just knew the moment he became a Christian that uh, as a very young child that he wanted to become uh, a missionary and now he's serving in China. And I remember that it was just so different for me because I remember in uh, in my freshman year of high school. I, I went to this youth conference in Kansas City, um, and, uh, and at the youth conference, they began to talk about this short-term mission trip opportunity to Peru, and uh, I just felt like God was saying, hey, you need to go on that, and I had zero desire to go to Peru. I wanted to spend my summer um, the way I wanted to spend my summer, and uh, I remember th- this feeling just kept you know, just almost became oppressive on me of God saying, hey, I I want you to go. And so I remember actually saying to God uh, verbally, out loud, all right, God, fine, I'll go to Peru, but then you have to leave me alone and I get to do whatever I want for the rest of my life. It's never a good thing to say that to God, is it? Um, I never actually went to Peru. I never kept up my end of the bargain and now I'm a pastor. And so um, God apparently has a sense of humor. Um, my calling is inseparably linked to my conversion. I was uh, a part of this ministry in high school um, that, that actually be, I was converted through it. And then um, it was in my final year of high school, I began to feel this calling or this sense of, hey, you know what, maybe this is where God is calling you uh, in your future. But even then, I was reluctant. I went to college as a, as a pre-med major. And as I've told Several other people, um, God has used biochemistry classes to uh, affirm my calling into ministry, uh, not into the medical field. And, and uh, as I think about vocational ministry, I think that it is uh, something that, that is um, it's so important, it's, it's so good, and yet it's, it's also at the same time, it's, it's not for everyone, and yet even though it's not for everyone, at the same time, we all should wrestle with whether we are called into vocational ministry. Ask anyone who has served in vocational ministry or why they serve in vocational ministry, either as a pastor or working on staff at a church or as a missionary, and they will mention or should mention a clear calling as the reason for going into ministry. Charles Spurgeon was one of the, uh, the greatest preachers the English language has ever known. And he once joked to pastoral candidates about this sense of a calling, of having a clear calling to go into ministry. And he said this, if you can do anything besides preach, then do it. And his, his focus was uh, on this idea that, that ministry should never be a fallback plan for us when we run out of other options. It should be instead seen as a good and important calling But also at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, it's not a calling for everyone. Some people are called to vocational ministry. Some people are called to mission work. Some people also at the same time are called not to do that, but instead to send people into the harvest field and to support them. And yet that's no less a form of ministry for us. And this morning I want us to ask, have you ever considered what your calling in ministry is? What is your calling in continuing the ministry of Jesus that started in Galilee 2,000 years ago? Have you ever asked how God might be 
asking you to contribute to his mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. One pastor, his name was Clifford Clark, he, he asked this poignant question that, that may overstate the case, but I think it's important for us to all wrestle with. It gets to the heart of the urgency of the gospel, and he says this, all believers are not called to be foreign missionaries, but everyone should struggle with the possibility. Everyone should wrestle with whether God has called them into mission work, or everyone is called, should wrestle with how we are called to serve God's mission here on earth. And this morning's text in Mark chapter 6, it's an important one. It looks at this crossroads in Mark's message, focusing on Jesus sending out other people now for the first time to do his mission on earth. In one sense, this morning's passage is, is at a crossroads. It serves as the culmination of everything that has come to this point in the Gospel of Mark. Everything to this point is focused on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And it's all in view of the second half of Mark chapter 6, verse 6. We looked at this last week. But the second half of Mark 6, 6 says this, And he went about among the villages teaching. The focus at the end of, of that verse, tells us that Jesus is going throughout Galilee. He's continuing to, to share his message of the kingdom. He's continuing to be on mission, describing and proclaiming the kingdom of God that is only found in him. And then we get to here this morning, in this passage, we see this change. Jesus' ministry of miracles by the Sea of Galilee has now come to a close. Jesus will continue to minister in Galilee, but, but it's with less frequency. We notice that everything that's taken place with the exception of one story at the beginning of Mark 5, everything that's taken place so far has taken place in Galilee, specifically almost always by the Sea of Galilee, and now we're going to see that that isn't always the case in Mark uh, as we go on. His disciples have traveled with him for a long season of time, and now he's about to send them out by twos. He's about to send them out by twos into the mission field, into, into Galilee, in order to do that exact same ministry for him. And they're going to face the exact same results as Jesus did. And this is an important thing for us this morning as well, because when we uh, participate in, the, in continuing Jesus' mission, we will meet the same results that Jesus did when he was ministering on earth. We see from Mark chapter 6 that Jesus meets incredible success. He meets success when people respond to the message of the gospel. They love to hear. They, they repent. They, they, they come to him. And, and sometimes they, they, they turn away, but other times they come and they, they stick with Jesus. And that will happen when we do mission work today. We may not always see it, but it will happen. But also Jesus is met with incredible hostility. He's, he's looked down upon by, by the religious leaders, the authorities, the people who are supposed to be on Jesus' side are the ones who turn their back on him, who actually begin to plot to kill him. Jesus goes to his hometown. He goes to his family, those who are supposed to be closest to him. And instead of being met with open arms, he's met with these murderous threats. And again, the same thing is true today. When we participate and when we continue Jesus' ministry, his mission today, we will be met with success. People will respond to the message of the gospel. And we will also be met with hostility. We will be met with those who want nothing to do with 
the gospel. But this text is not just a culmination of what has come before. It also looks forward to the future. Next week, we're going to look at the passage that comes right after this, and it's this flashback that focuses on the story of John the Baptist and what happens to him. Mark begins with John the Baptist, and it tells us what John the Baptist is doing, and then it tells us he's arrested and then doesn't mention him for six chapters. And then we come back to, to this story, and Mark says, hey, you want to know what happened to John the Baptist? He was killed because of his message of the kingdom. And we've seen, as we worked our way through Mark to this point, we've seen that Mark strategically weaves different stories together. He weaves these different stories together to explain a, a bigger point. And, and that's what he's doing here. He, he starts with this description of sending out the 12 apostles. And he sends them out into the mission field. And then he presses pause on that. And he looks at this story of John the Baptist and what happens to John the Baptist. And then he comes back in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And we see the result of what took place when all of these apostles are sent out by Jesus. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to look at, at the sacrifice that comes with participating in Christ's mission, specifically by looking at John the Baptist and his death. But this morning, Jesus, or Mark is making the exact same point as well. He's reminding us that the ministry, participating in Jesus' mission here on earth, comes with a great cost. And for many, like John, that cost comes through their own life. And that's been true throughout church history. That's true today. There are more people who are martyred for their faith today than there have been ever in history. You see, Mark wants us to persevere. Mark is writing to a church in Rome who are beginning to experience this increasing persecution. They're, in, they're beginning to suffer more and more and more for the gospel, and he wants them to persevere in their faith, to follow the exact same footsteps that, that the apostles did before them when they suffered, to follow the exact same footsteps that John the Baptist did when he suffered, and even when, when Jesus did when he was led to the cross. This morning, we're going to be in verses 7 through 13. As I mentioned earlier, we see Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go do his ministry in Galilee. And this text is straightforward. It breaks into three parts. First, we see Jesus' call. Second, Jesus' charge. And then third and finally, the continuation of Jesus' ministry. So as we approach God, God's word, let's pray once more. Father, as we approach your word, we rejoice that it's not just a collection of of ancient histories, but it's living and active and, and that your spirit is at work and, and uses it to bring the dead to life. You, you use it to, to encourage the weary and to strengthen the weak. And so as we look at this text on ministry, I just ask that you would use this text this morning uh, to do and to accomplish the work that each and every one of us needs in our lives. God, that you would use this work to... to uh, to help us to reflect on, on how you might be calling us to participate in, in your ministry, because it's your ministry, not ours, that started in Galilee thousands of years ago and now has spread to just about every single corner of the earth. And, and God, I ask that you would even lay it on the hearts of some here this morning uh, to take the incredible costly step of following you into vocational ministry. We ask that you would come and speak to your church this morning, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, open up to Mark chapter 6. Uh, we're going to start in verse 7 this morning. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 says this. And he called the twelve 
and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. We're going to pause there. This is the call. This is the focus on, on Jesus calling his, uh, some of his disciples out into mo- uh, vocational ministry. I mentioned earlier that this passage start, uh, stands at a crossroads in Mark, and it brings to a close what took place before it. This is actually kind of the bookends that we see from the beginning of Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, 13 through 15, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. They call these apostles to follow him. And these men have been following Jesus for months, and, and they're traveling with him. And Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 4, and Mark chapter 5 all focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee and what they were witness to. And these men saw incredible power from Jesus. They saw that Jesus is the only one on earth who can, who can control nature, that he's the only one who can conquer evil incarnate, and, and he can even conquer death itself. These are people who have seen uh, incredible teaching from Jesus. It's so great that it left them dumbfounded and, and silent by this proclamation of, of the, the gospel of the kingdom that is found only in him. And they've witnessed it all. And now Jesus sends some of them, not all of his disciples, but some of them out into ministry. Now notice what this text makes abundantly clear. Jesus is the one who calls, and Jesus is the one who sends people into ministry. Jesus is the one who calls, and Jesus is the one who sends. Mark makes a distinction throughout his gospel between disciples, those who follow Jesus, and apostles, or the 12, those who are sent out by Jesus to do his ministry. Anyone can be a disciple. The message of the gospel, this message of repentance to come to Jesus is left open for anyone who would come, who would repent and believe the gospel. But not everyone is an apostle. Not everyone is a sent one. Only those who are called are sent. Jesus is not asking for volunteers here. In fact, the only volunteer in the gospel of Mark uh, is actually rejected from his, his ask to be uh, a part of Jesus' ministry. It takes place in Mark chapter 5 uh, with the story of this man who was once demon-possessed, and he comes before Jesus, and he says, Hey, Jesus, I want to go with you. I'm volunteering to, to be a part of your ministry. And Jesus says, No. Go back home. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your neighbors of what I've done for you. But your calling is not into vocational ministry. Mark makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the one who calls people into ministry. This is also really clear in Luke. Luke chapter 10, uh, most powerful verse in the Bible when it comes to this idea of calling. The calling that that God does to call people into full-time ministry. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And he, Jesus, said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It doesn't say, therefore, get up and get going. It doesn't say, therefore, look to the person on your right and say, hey, you need to become a missionary. It says, no, therefore, pray that, that the Lord of the harvest, that Jesus himself would be the one who is at work in people's hearts saying, hey, hey, it's time for you to go into the harvest. 
God doesn't take volunteers for ministry. He calls people into ministry. This is true throughout the Bible. Abraham is called. Moses is called. David is called. Jonah is called. John the Baptist is called. The, the disciples are called. Paul or Peter and the apostles are called. Paul is called. And, and even today, people are still called into ministry. And what is it that these men do? Well, as we know, uh, have already noted, they're sent out uh, to, to follow or, or, or be Jesus' representatives. And, and they're not just sent out on their own. They're sent out two by two. And there's a lot of practical wisdom in that. Uh, having a partner in ministry is, is so important for, for longevity. It's so important for, for dealing with, with discouragement and, and carrying the load that comes with ministry. But it's more than just a, a good tidbit uh, of advice for how to, to survive ministry burnout. This is actually tied back to something that takes place in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the law says that if you're going to bear witness in like a criminal trial, there have to, has to be at least two or three witnesses for the, the trial to be proven. And so if you were to be the only person who comes before uh, a judge and says, hey, you know what, that person is guilty, then it would not stand. You'd need at least two people to, to prove the legitimacy of your claim. And that, that was the, the case for criminal trials. And it is also true when you are bearing witness to something like who Jesus is. Having one person testify to, to who Jesus is and, and what he has done would not be considered legitimate according to the Old Testament. You need at least two people to meet the, the legal requirement of the law. So first we send out that these people are sent out with this specific purpose, and that's to bear witness to Jesus. That's, that's their purpose, to bear witness to Jesus and to his message. Their task is simply to just share with everyone that they come into contact with what they have experienced and what they have seen with Jesus. But second, notice that they're also Jesus' representatives. They alone are given authority to cast out these unclean spirits. This legitimizes their message, absolutely, in, in another sense. And the Gospel of John actually talks about uh, miracles as another witness to, to who Jesus is. This legitimizes their message because if you were to come across someone who says, hey, hey, you know what, this Jesus fellow, he, he's the, the conqueror of Satan, he can conquer death, uh, and he sent me out as his representative, uh, and I have that exact same power. Don't believe me? Well, we'll just watch this. And then they do a miracle. You're a lot more apt to believe them than someone who says, hey, hey, uh, I know this may sound ridiculous, but this Jesus guy, he, he's actually who he says he is, and, and you'll just have to take my word on it because there's two of us. And so, so Jesus sends these people out as his representatives, and he gives them authority to legitimize their message, but also because he's commissioning them. And he's saying, hey, I want you to be me. I want you to be my representative to the people of Galilee as you proclaim my message. What an incredible calling. What an incredibly difficult calling for these people. Jesus calls them, and Jesus sends them as servants. And they're going to follow the footsteps of their servant king. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 tells us about this calling. And while the focus here is on those who are called into the harvest, those who are called into vocational ministry, the reality is all of us have a calling to participate in some way in the ministry of the gospel and the continuing Jesus' mission here on earth. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But first I want us to, to just keep going and look, starting in verse 8, at the second part of this passage. And this is Jesus' charge. 
Jesus charges these people, these men, as he sends them out with a certain way to live. He gives them three specific charges about how they're to conduct their lives as his representatives. Pick up in verse 8. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, before we jump into these three specific charges, I want to just briefly touch on a common question because I've heard it um, a fair bit, and that is, um, is this passage describing how people who are in vocational ministry today should still live and operate? In other words, is this a, a descriptive passage describing what took place then, or is it prescriptive or prescribing how we are supposed to live today? And for several reasons, this is, this is absolutely descriptive. Elsewhere in, in, the, um, in the New Testament, Jesus sends out other people. He doesn't just send out the 12. Later, he sends out 72 to be his representatives, and he sends them out with different instructions. Also, in the book of Acts, we see the early church uh, looks at, at this passage, and they say, well, that's not how we're supposed to live. And, and if you look in the book of Acts, they don't actually live in this way as they're called out into ministry. And so it's descriptive, and yet at the same time, there's some great principles here for how we are to live as Jesus' representatives. Let's just look at three. First is this, Jesus charges his representatives to conduct their lives in a way that reveals their dependence upon God. Conduct their lives in a way that reveals their dependence upon God. Notice what Jesus tells his disciples to go without over the short season. It's a, it's a short time. Uh, go, out, go without in the short season of ministry. He says, don't bring any food with you. He says, don't bring any extra clothes. Don't bring any money with you. Jesus' representatives are to follow Jesus' example. Jesus did the exact same thing when he was walking around Galilee. He was relying on God, and he was relying on the hospitality of God's people. And so when his disciples or his apostles are sent out, they are to enter into a town, and they're supposed to stay at the first house that welcomes them in. They're not supposed to, when they get another offer for a bigger or nicer house, say, well, the food's better over there, so thank you for your time here, but it's time to move up the, the social hierarchy and the social ladder. You're supposed to be content with the God who provides and how God provides for those needs. Over the last couple months, I've been reading this biography about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor uh, was, um, is actually known as, as kind of the, the father of modern-day missions to China and uh, lived in the, the early 1800s. And, and one thing that struck me time and time again as he um, is preparing to go on to the mission field um, in China, he, he's still living in England, and, and it, he just puts, him through, puts himself through all of these different hoops, if you will, uh, to prove to himself or test himself, do I really depend on God alone? Do I really depend on God, or do I have a lack of of faith. And I think if you read this and you hear what he does, and I'll share an example here, um, it's, uh, he, he takes it too far, I think. Um, but it's, at the same time, it's a challenging reminder to us uh, of what it looks like to, to depend fully upon God. And so multiple times in uh, Hudson Taylor's life, he gives away more money than he actually keeps for himself, to the point where he actually has to, he has to be completely fully dependent upon God to meet his needs, like rent and food. And he doesn't know where his rent money is going to come from because he got a paycheck and he gave it all away. 
Again, I'm not saying that this is what we should be doing. But more than once, actually, in this biography, it describes his employer forgetting to pay him, forgetting to give him a paycheck, and rather than coming to his boss and saying, hey, hey, you know, uh, payday was yesterday and I, I have to go to the grocery store. Can you, can you pay me? Rather than just doing that, he instead decides that this is a test from God. And he's going to spend time praying for God to provide for him. And he actually spends hours and hours and hours praying that God would actually bring it to mind, bring it to the mind of his employer to remember that he hadn't paid him yet. Again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this is the best example of how we should prove our dependence upon God. It almost certainly isn't. There's, there's nothing wrong if you didn't get paid to talk to your employer about that and say, hey, you know, um, a workman's worth his wages. There's nothing wrong with a missionary coming before a church and asking for support. But the principle is good. It reveals the heart of the one who ministers in the gospel. It is one who is fully dependent upon God to provide. So Jesus says, I want you to live a lifestyle that proves that you are fully dependent upon God to provide, that you're not in this for something else. Second thing that Jesus charges his representatives to do is is to conduct their lives in a way that points to the coming deliverance. It points to this coming deliverance. So Jesus tells his disciples or his apostles what not to bring, but he also tells them a couple things that they are to bring. He tells them to, to bring a staff. He tells them to bring a belt, just don't bring any money in it. And he tells them to bring sandals. Is this significant at all? Well, if you look at the Bible and you say, okay, where where do these three things show up together in another place? And there's this passage from Exodus. Exodus of all places. And it's God instructing the people of Israel right before the Exodus, right before he saves them from slavery to the Egyptians, he says this in Exodus chapter 12. In this manner you shall eat the Passover, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So what does that mean? Well, here on the eve of God's greatest deliverance for his people Israel, The moment that the people of Israel always looked back toward and said, that is the defining moment for us, where God saved us from slavery to sin, or from slavery to Egypt. God tells his people, I want you to live in a certain way. I want you to prepare to leave with your staff, with your belt, and with your sandals. And the same thing that Jesus mentioned here, I want you to do this as an expectation for God's deliverance for you, that it is coming, and it is coming soon. He's going to save you from the Egyptians. And then Jesus says the exact same thing here. Remember back in Mark chapter 1, we we saw that uh, one of the things that Mark is is trying to do in this book is, is to tell us that the Exodus, this moment in Israel's history, in the Old Testament, this moment when God delivers Israel from slavery to, to Egypt, is going to be foreshadowed, or it's going to be um, outshone by, by the glory of this coming Exodus. When Jesus is not going to save his people from slavery to the Egyptians, but instead he's going to save his people from slavery to sin. And so Jesus tells them to live in a way that shows or or points back to this moment of the Exodus, this message of deliverance. He wants his, his representatives to live in a similar way as the people did back then, pointing people to this coming deliverance of God's people. Now here's the thing. 
First century Jews probably would have picked up on this. They, they had the Exodus story memorized. They would have known, oh, yeah, Jesus is telling them to only uh, bring a staff and a belt and, and sandals. So that, that reminds me of, of the Exodus. But that doesn't take place today, does it? If I, if I were up here and I had uh, a staff and a belt and sandals and a tunic, because that's more appropriate, um, and if I had that, and, and I, I expected that to point to you guys, hey, I, I believe in a coming deliverance, it wouldn't work. We wouldn't understand the, the cultural context, that we wouldn't understand the object lesson. And so is there a way for us to not just wear clothes in a certain way, but, but to, to live in a certain way that, that points to this hope we have in a coming deliverance? Well, the book of Hebrews is so important on, on helping us to understand how we're supposed to live with the, with the end in mind with this end of eternal glory in mind. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us this beautiful picture of those that have this mindset of longing, not for the life here like those who are around us, but this life in a better country is what the author of Hebrews uses to describe it. This one that God promises to those he will deliver. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God wants his people to live their lives in a way that makes it clear that they are living for and hoping for something greater. That the way they spend their time, the way they spend their money, the way they spend their talents, utilize them, isn't indistinguishable from their unbelieving neighbors, but instead points to this coming deliverance that we hope for and we long for as those who believe. Third thing that Jesus charges his representatives is to conduct their lives in a way that warns of this coming judgment. Jesus says judgment is coming. That's one of his key tenets of, of his proclamation of the gospel to repent before it's too late. And, and Jesus is, is saying that some of his people, some of his uh, people that he sends out, they're going to go to places that will not receive them. If Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, his disciples will be rejected as well. And so he, he tells them, you need to shake off the dust of your feet against these towns. Now, what does that mean? In the first century, it was common for Jews, if you were a religious Jew and you were traveling through Gentile territory and you got to the border of Jewish territory, that when you got there and you entered into Jewish territory, you would actually shake the dust off your feet. That, came, that, that clung to you while you were in, in Gentile territory. And this was a sign of judgment and saying, I don't want anything to do with those pagans. I don't want anything to do with these people who don't believe in God. It was a sign of judgment that is coming upon those who do not believe. And here Jesus is telling his disciples to do that, but not to, to Gentiles. He's telling them to actually do it to Jews. It's a sign of judgment. What Jesus is saying is that judgment is coming for everyone who does not believe. It doesn't make a difference if you are from Rome or Jerusalem. It doesn't make a difference if you are raised by pagans or you are raised by those who knew their Bible. If you yourself do not repent, if you yourself do not believe in the gospel, then you will be met with judgment. And so today we are called to live our lives in light of the reality of a judgment that is coming. That does not at all mean that we have license to look down upon others. It doesn't mean at all that we are to separate ourselves from those who do not believe. It doesn't mean that we need to become doom and gloom prophets crying out to everyone, the end is near. 
but we need to, to live with an urgency because when we truly understand that judgment is coming, it creates this urgency in our hearts like nothing else does. There's this book, it's one of my favorite books, it's called Finish the Mission, and it's got a, a, a number of different authors contributing to it. David Platt contributes a chapter, and he says there's three motivations for getting involved in, in what God is doing across the globe. The first motivation, he says, is the urgency of the multitudes who have no saving knowledge of Jesus. The second uh, motivation to get involved is the incredible glory or beauty of the gospel that is able to save them. And the third thing is that God is good enough to satisfy us forever. And if you don't have these three pieces, these three motivations, this urgency that comes from the reality of judgment, the glory or the beauty of the gospel that is able to save us, and the goodness of God that he is able to satisfy us forever, then we have this incomplete message of the gospel, this incomplete motivation to be involved in, in participating in God's work here on earth. And so we should live lives that hold all three of these truths and hold them fastly. Third uh, thing this text describes is this description of the apostles continuing Jesus' ministry. And, and honestly, for us today, too, it's a, it's a good reminder to us that our ministry is a continuation of Jesus' ministry as well. Our ministry today is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and they healed them. Now, notice the content of their ministry. It's the exact same thing that Jesus did when he walked throughout Galilee. He procla they, Jesus proclaimed repentance in the kingdom, just like his disciples are called to do. And they cast out evil spirits and healed the sick, just like Jesus was supposed to do. Jesus has not stopped. His ministry has not stopped. Now it's multiplied through his representatives. And just like Jesus' ministry, it will be met with incredible joys. There are going to be people who respond, and there's going to be incredible moments like this healing of this woman in Mark chapter 5 who begins to become a part of Jesus' family, and these incredible sorrows, these moments where Jesus is rejected by the people of Nazareth in Mark chapter 6. And they're sent out as, as Jesus' representatives, continuing Jesus' ministry, and, they're, and most importantly, they're, they're given Jesus' power. How else do you think they're able to heal the sick? How else do you think they're able to cast out evil spirits? It's an incredible promise here from Jesus that I'm going to send you out, and I'm going to send you out with power. He's reminding us that when we participate in the mission of Jesus, that, that we're not doing it so on our own strength, but through the same Spirit who strengthened and empowered Jesus. That doesn't mean that a ministry is illegitimate necessarily if it's not coupled with signs and wonders. But instead, that, that, that ministry must be fully dependent upon God, fully dependent upon God's Spirit to bring people to saving faith. And so our ministry today, hopefully, is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. It's the same message, and it's, it's done with the same power through God's Spirit. Now, before we close, I, I just want to ask briefly what, what we mean by calling. Uh, after all, Jesus has a different calling for each of every one of us. Even those who are called into vocational ministry have different callings. Uh, and so would we are, am I doing a disservice to this text when I, when I say that this actually applies to all of us in ministry? This calling, this charge, and this continuation of Jesus' ministry. Is it, 
Is it really applicable to all of us? And the first thing I, I want to say is I don't, I don't want it at all to, to say every sort of ministry, every sort of, of calling is the same thing. There's a difference between those who are sent and there's a difference between those who are sent, uh, those who send. There's a difference between those who minister locally. The calling of a vocational minister is absolutely one that is, is indeed incredible and, and, and unique. But while there, there are different types of ministry at the same time, I think the, this commissioning that Jesus gives to his people is, is true for all of us. This calling, this charge, and this continuation matters for us no matter our specific calling. There are some of us who are called to be sent out, and that might be sent out to the mission field, sent out to another country. There might be some like, like me. I was sent out by my home church to a, to a very similar context, and yet not my hometown, into full-time ministry. And, and, and there are several times in the, in the New Testament that, that that's made clear. But there are also times in the, in the New Testament that we see that, that God calls some people to send. He calls some people to stay, to minister locally, and then to send. And God may not be calling you into vocational ministry, but he is calling you to be a participant in his mission. And so one of the ways that we do that is, is through sending. If we look at the book of Acts, we see a couple different ways that we can send. We can send by uh, praying. The book of Acts describes in Acts chapter 13 that the church in Antioch, and they're obedient to the Holy Spirit, and they begin to pray and pray and pray, and they, they take a step of faith, and they're the first people to send out foreign missionaries in, in church history. It's a step of faith, and they did it by praying first and foremost. We also see from the New Testament that one of the ways that we send is through financial support. The book of Philippians is all about financial support. And in a very real sense, the book of Philippians is written from a missionary, Paul, to a church that was supporting him. And it's a thank you letter. And he describes over and over again how they have supported him in the past. And Paul is saying, thank you. And so if God is not calling you to go, maybe he's calling you to, to send and maybe specifically through prayer and through financial support. And as you are sending, you also have the opportunity to participate in ministry locally right here and right now. And this is also on display in the church in Philippi. Acts 16 tells us how the church in Philippi started. It started uh, with this woman named Lydia. She was a wealthy merchant. And uh, it also started with this Philippian jailer and his family. And, it, and Acts tells us that they don't, they don't become missionaries. As far as we know, Lydia remains a merchant and the jailer remains a jailer, and yet they are a part of this ministry in Philippi that leads to this growth that becomes a church. And in, as Paul is writing in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, he's writing to these people that aren't serving in vocational ministry, that aren't a part of, of uh, paid ministry people. They're not, they're not missionaries, they're not pastors, and he calls them fellow gospel workers fellow gospel workers, those who are participating in God's ministry no matter what. And God may not be calling you to participate in gospel ministry like, uh, like Paul did, but he is calling you to participate in God's ministry. In fact, that's, that's what our text is ultimately about. Jesus calls us to serve as his representatives in word and in deed as a continuation of his own ministry. Jesus calls us to serve as his representatives in word and deed as a continuation of his own ministry. Just like the 12 that Jesus sends out 
to continue and to multiply his ministry in Galilee, God has also sent you out to be his representative. And maybe he's calling you to actually go, to, to be a missionary, to enter into pastoral ministry. Maybe he's just calling you to stay, to devote yourself to prayer, to be a, a part of uh, those who, who in Luke chapter 2 are praying earnestly that the Lord would raise up workers for the harvest. How is God calling you to participate in his ministry? Every single thing that we do, we have an opportunity to represent Christ and to continue his mission and his ministry. Will you be obedient to that calling? Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would help us to discern your calling in our lives, to be a people who are obedient and who joyfully participate in what you continue to do here on earth. Give us faith to step out in faith. Give us courage to do so. And give us a heart that desires to only serve you and depend on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.